Well, thanks to all our musicians this morning. Uh, I was born into the post-World War II uh, era and uh, grew up listening to my uncle and my dad talk about the big war. And so some of those shots that you saw in that video, that brought back not memories, firsthand experience memories, but secondhand memories for me and my buddies, my cousins and friends, we grew up playing World War II. Uh, but in those 1940s years, the United States and the British Empire fought two massive wars at the same time and won both of them, an incredible feat, uh, and pushed back the forces of darkness and evil, two horrendous forces driving those two wars at the same time, and they prevailed, for which we are grateful. And today, with no less courage, but with armament that would be mind-boggling to the World War II crowd, uh, young members of our military still go out and they fly over Syria and they serve in Afghanistan in very dangerous places and it's still part of the same picture. The labels of the nations change and rotate but it's still the clash of good and evil and I praise God for the role that our nation has had in pushing back that evil down through the years uh, for a long time. There was a movie that came out in 1986, and it was called The Mission. I don't know if any of you ever saw that or would remember that. It's a really good movie, well done. But it was about Jesuit missionaries to South America. About 20 years before the great Protestant Reformation broke out in northern Europe, of which we are the descendants, the countries of Spain and Portugal signed a treaty. They were sending out their ships around the world, colonizing, and they decided that they would, rather than fight with each other about the map, they would divide the map up, and they would go and do their respective things. And so they created a, an arbitrary line, on a line of longitude, and everything to the east of that was going to be Portuguese, and everything to the west of that was going to be Spanish. And so as a result of that, the west coast of Africa was mined by the slave traders of Portugal, Horrendous things came as a result of that. The islands of the eastern Atlantic were Portuguese. Almost all of the Americas were viewed as Spanish. But if you followed that line, it came down through the continent of South America and it cut off a sizable portion of the country of what we would call today Brazil. And that became Portuguese. That's why you speak Portuguese in Brazil. That's the major language there. So they divided up the map. So the movie, The Mission, is about missionaries who went into that area in an endeavor to, while they were losing massive numbers to the Protestant cause in Northern Europe, they were replacing that with large numbers of people that were at least superficially coming to Christ in third world countries, places like what we call Brazil. Uh, the movie had Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons and Liam Neeson back when they were nobodies. They were just rookie actors in those days. But the movie shows how their mission work is undermined and eventually dissolved, not because they were failures, they were very successful at what they were doing in that location with what they set out to do, but world politics, it was way over their head that they had no awareness of was changing what they were able to do in their little location. So you have to go see the movie yourself. Well, you can't go see the movie, but maybe you can find a copy of it or you can YouTube up at least parts of it. 
Uh, and if you can filter out a little bit of the Jesuit theology that's woven in there, it's, it's an impressive movie. The clash of good and evil. It's huge. It's timeless. It goes all the way back to the beginning. It predates uh, planet Earth, but it's a part of the human dilemma from Genesis 3 to right this minute. The clash of good and evil over and over again for turf, for spiritual turf. For places on the maps, yes, but for spiritual turf. And what will prevail, good or evil? Some days we're so caught up in our, our, our games and our, our issues and our finances and all of our things that we grow numb and mindless to the reality of that huge clash down through the ages and into the present. And like those Jesuit missionaries in Brazil in the mission, sometimes we're, we're wondering, why is it like this? And if we could back off and see from a sovereign God's perspective, it's because this is part of this. This is one part of a huge story of a sovereign God clashing with the forces of evil. It runs all through the Bible. Now, we've been looking at some passages from the book of Revelation in recent weeks, so we want to turn to Revelation 13, either in your Bible or on our screen. The scriptures come up. Revelation 13 and 14 are a significant interlude between all those trumpets and seals of the past and the bowls of wrath that are going to unload after this portion of scripture uh, is concluded. But in chapter 13, we have the emergence of the Antichrist figure. And you've probably, some of you, read prophecy books about that. Some of us read Hal Lindsey a long, long time ago and learned some things from that and uh, learned different things and more things about that since then. But this chapter depicts uh, the emergence of an incredible force of evil. And we're not going to solve all the problems. We're not even going to raise the questions, all the questions that you could get into about this issue. But we want to see the main thing. So chapter 13, verse 1 says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Now, there are textual issues there. Two or three of you in the room would know about, uh, about whether it's the dragon on the shore or John on the shore. Uh, and a couple of ways that you see a couple other things that are in the passage. But let's stay on the main thought. It is likely the dragon. The, the word dragon's really supplied there. It's really, he stood on the sand of the seashore. And then I, that's John, saw the beast coming up out of the sea. Now, we've already seen previously the great red dragon that was perched and ready to devour the male child when he's born, the Messiah, Jesus. But that dragon, that beast, is on the seashore, and here comes another beast who will be his tool, really, his, his partner, but his uh, implement of destruction. And he says, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. It sounds like that other passage we looked at about the great red dragon. In verse 2 it says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like that of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So here's a strange thing coming up out of the sea. And uh, I've got books where people have tried to illustrate that. 
or communicate what that have look, would have looked like. Uh, you can, on uh, your own time, go home and you can read the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, way before the days of the book of Revelation. And you see some of these images that John seems to see in the vision that he has there of this beast coming out related to leopards and lions and bears. And all these things kind of come together and, and collectively they're this symbol of something evil and wicked emerging from the sea. And his mouth like a lion. Uh, the dragon gave him power and his throne and great authority. Now, Jesus said, before this was written, Jesus, 60 years before this was written, said to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, all authority is given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples. So you and I know we are informed by a higher theology and a greater knowledge that this authority, this great authority, is great compared to what the world might think is important, but is under the greater authority of a sovereign God. And all that greater authority belongs to Jesus. And you and I this morning must never, never, never forget that the greatest authority and the highest authority and the prevailing authority belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. Man, we get so caught up in our news and so frustrated and sometimes angry. Sometimes your, your blood may boil of our things you see on television, especially this time of year in the political season. Don't ever forget that our God wins. He is the prevailing God and his authority is greater than all. In verse 3, John continues with his vision. And I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed. Now, I don't know what that, I'm not going to begin to explain that. There have been all kinds of explanations in my lifetime I've heard. Uh, one of the contenders for who the, since I've studied the Bible, uh, I've heard it suggested that John Kennedy was the Antichrist. Uh, that uh, I can't even remember them all. Ronald Reagan was at one time, you could do tricks with his name and come up with a number, and he was the Antichrist. I've heard that it's Barack Obama and, and Donald Trump, or both of them, and uh, all. Uh, forget all of that stuff. You'll never solve that riddle. You, God will show you what you need to know in time. But know this this is uh, one of these characters, and uh, the reason that people like to identify JFK, they used to say he was still alive over in Dallas in a back room of the hospital and his fatal head injury was going to be healed and he was going to be the antichrist figure of revelation 13 forget i even told you about that <laughs> but john says i i see this horrendous figure this image of evil and part of him has apparently died and is back to life and he says in the whole world's amazed at this this is incredible Oh, we thought he was dead. Look at the, look at the injury, and, and yet he lives and is emerging. So this is a great turning to him and fascination. Uh, it's a mock resurrection. Now, Satan's strategy in the scriptures and throughout the book of Revelation is to duplicate or uh, counterfeit what God does in reality. And our whole Christian world and our theology and our church is built around the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. And so here you have in Revelation 13 this false counterfeit resurrection that would steal the glory of the resurrection of Christ. And John tries to describe that for us. And he says they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. So now you've got uh, not only two beings, but later in the chapter you'll get a third one. And so you get this, this false trinity. But here the first figure, the dragon, is passing on his authority to the beast that's emerging from the sea. Don't take things too literally or you'll miss the point of the real realities of what these things represent. This satanic force is now being transferred or bestowed upon somebody who's going to amaze the world. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? All those individuals from news, Henry Kissinger, and all the ones that have been uh, so-called antichrist possibilities in the past, uh, all those, none of them are good enough to pull off what's described in Revelation 13. This guy's going to be slicker, smarter uh, than anybody that we've seen yet. He's going to be able to impress people and manipulate people and uh, guide events, and he derives his authority from the red dragon. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. An authority to act 42 months, uh, for 42 months was given to him. Now the 42 months is maybe the second half of the Great Tribulation. And we're not going to even go there try to solve that riddle today. Other than to just note that here is this this character emerging from the sea. Whatever the sea represents and whoever he turns out to be. Uh, a great world leader emerges and he speaks things that from our perspective, from our biblical worldview, are blasphemous things. Arrogant things. He says literally he was speaking great things, bragging things, and blasphemies. And uh, if, if you've worked in the real world for long, been around enough people, you hear samplings of that, but this is on a grand scale by someone who can at least pretend to have great powers and authority. He's speaking arrogantly. We noted in Wednesday night as we were looking at another portion of Revelation uh, there that the tools in the toolbox of Satan are tools of the word. He accuses, he brags, uh, but he accuses. That's his, his number one tool. You see a lot of that on the nightly news. Accusation. And he opened his mouth in verse 6 and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. So, well, we know the, about the name of God, but his tabernacle, we've read about Moses' tabernacle in Exodus and Numbers. And uh, we know about that tent that's a forerunner to the temple and how that was a big part of Old Testament theology that taught us about New Testament theology uh, but what does John mean here when he talks about his name, God's name, and God's tabernacle? It's sort of a strange reference John gives us to something else. And so he tells us, we don't have to wonder about that. That tabernacle he speaks of in this context, he says, that is those who dwell in heaven. These are people who live uh, eternally in the presence of their Redeemer, of their God. They dwell in heaven. It was also given to him, that's to this beast, 
to this antichrist figure emerging from the sea. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. This guy, uh, this, uh, some of the old interpreters would search the record of Roman history to try to figure out which ancient character fulfilled this role. None of them are up to it. It has to be somebody in our time or future uh, to be able to fulfill this. But again, verse 7 is a counterfeit. You go back to the early chapters of Revelation where we looked months ago now, and you had this depiction of uh, worship, glorious worship in heaven, and John says there were people there from every tribe and tongue and nation, every people group, uh, redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's reality, that's heaven, that's glorious. And so here comes the beast with his counterfeit, and he rules over people from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. Uh, what is Jesus's in reality, he wants, but it's not enduring its counterfeit stuff. But there's this semblance and this pretense of great authority over the nations of the world. Got to be a pretty slick politician or, or international public ruler uh, to pull off what's described here by John. He makes war against the saints, against the church. Now, that opens a whole other can of worms. But uh, those people who have trusted Christ are his target. It is the mission of the great red dragon. And it is the mission of the beast to destroy the church. And keep that in mind. Don't just kind of keep it, you know, there in your thinking. As your worldview matures, as your understanding of current events and future realities uh, comes clearer just keep that in mind the mission of the great red dragon is to destroy the church in general and your church in particular and he's pretty good at it and he can divide a baptist church pretty quickly over crazy things and uh, we we fall into the trap now when i study this and look at it and i've read this so many times and again this week many many times over and over and i diagrammed it and diagrammed it upside down uh, not exactly but uh, as I work through this, I'm amazed at how verse 7 plays into the sovereignty of God. If God is absolutely in control, and he is, and uh, that's a hill to die on. Uh, I'll, I'll never surrender that. God is sovereign. God is in control. How does this happen? Where does this kind of authority come from? Where does this kind of evil and this blasphemy come from? How does that take place with God seeming to be defeated or compromised? Or where is God? Have you ever thought that or, or questioned? Lord, I don't understand. Uh, we're down here on the battlefield and you seem to be not here. And I don't understand. Some of us have watched too much football in recent days and recent weeks. Uh, a lot of folks, especially this part of the country, we love our football. Uh, we love some teams more than we love other teams, uh, but we watch those games. Uh, one of the things you can do in a football game is a draw play. And uh, probably most of you watched enough football to kind of know the general idea of that. And the, the idea is when a, a defense is particularly good, 
you take advantage of how good they are by allowing them to be overconfident in what they're doing. And you begin to uh, cave around the side and these tackles and ends start sweeping around thinking they're going to destroy the quarterback. Uh, and by that seeming success, they create this great vacuum in the middle and either the quarterback or a running back or somebody goes charging right up the middle into the vacuum that they've created. Right when they think they are going to do something great, they get burned. Revelation 13, 14, these chapters are God's draw play. And Satan is on the move to destroy the church. He is here literally warring against the saints. And suddenly he'll find himself under the crushing defeat of the bowls of wrath of God that will unfold. But for a season, for a season only, it seems as though every tribe and tongue and nation are, are turning to this false prophet to, and to the false uh, Messiah of the beast that's emerged from the sea under the influence of the great red dragon. It's troubling when you, when you see that and you think, well, is the, is the church in America just going to continue to erode? Are we going to lose all of our power and our, our influence? Are, are we losing? Are we losing? You can check some numbers and begin to build a case that we're losing our grip on our culture and it can become very discouraging. And so the book of Revelation is very helpful to us like it was 2,000 years ago to a people in a very, very troubled time then. And John would say, oh, no, no, this is God's draw play. And Satan's fallen right for it. And right when he thinks he has every tribe and people and tongue and nation under his grip, here comes sovereign God's roaring back plan uh, to retake all of that and prevail. And that's the book of Revelation. It's amazing. And as my old teacher used to say, read it all in one sitting or you're going to mess up. Uh, read it all together where you don't get little pieces and miss the big picture. And verse 8, John says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, that's this Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. Or in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now there's a translation challenge there. And I know this could get real complicated real quick. Uh, some of you just uh, take a 20 second pause and those that are interested hang in there. And uh, you can take what John says there about from the foundation of the world and you can either apply that to names being written in the book or to the lamb being slain. There's music. Jonathan, could, I, I meant to ask him and I, I don't know the song. I've got it, parts of it in my head. That's all I ever get are parts of songs in my head. Uh, but there's a song about Jesus slain from the foundation of the world. And it comes from this passage because some translators have done it that way. The one having been slain from the foundation of the world. The King James Bible and the NIV have it that way. The NIV reads, uh, in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. I suggest to you the, the better understanding of that is that it's the book written from the foundation of the world. The names in the book from the foundation of the world. And you can take that a couple of different ways. And then I'm going to quit and, and get back on track. And those of you that are into that kind of thing can study it further. It could be that the book, the, all the names that are in the Lamb's Book of Life were in the book before the world ever started. They're there from the foundation. 
Or John could be saying, these are the names that have been added to the book since the foundation of the world. You can take it either way, and uh, depending on your theology, you may be more comfortable one way than the other. Uh, but note, what we can glean from that with certainty is John says there is a book with names in it, and the names in the book of the people with a sincere, born-again heart whose faith is totally in the finished work of the cross of the Lamb, the Lamb that has been slain. It's a very gospel message. And right when the dragon and the beast think they're taking the map, they want all the pieces, here comes God and the Lamb and His book with your name in there if you're a child of God through Jesus Christ. It's a glorious picture. It's awesome to think there's a book, an ancient book with your name in it. I've only been around so many years. Way back from the beginning, God knew where he was going and, and, and knows enough, whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist or how, whichever way you take that, either way you come down with some incredible knowledge of God or the, the nations and the people and the individuals and, and their names in a, a priceless book. The membership role of the true church. What a glorious thing to have your name there. Imagine being in heaven someday and some angel saying, come look at the book. There's your name. And it's been there a long time. And Jesus came for you that you might be redeemed and that your name might be on this roster in glory. There's a, a game called Risk. We used to play at our house a lot. and Played it in our neighborhood as kids growing up. But our Zambians, when they were here, they loved to play Risk. It's a map of the world, and you try to conquer the world. Uh, and, you get it, and Gideon was pretty good at this, y'all. Remember Gideon. And you get these cards, and the cards are worth extra armies that you cash in later. And it looked like Gideon was gone in this game. It's, it's pitiful. And, and all of a sudden, Gideon pulls out about 20 cards and starts calling out all these armies. And the, the armies of his color, they're, all of a sudden they're everywhere. And he prevailed and he won the game. And God is saying in Revelation 13, I've got an army you can't comprehend and it will win. It will prevail. Have faith, church. Have faith, individual Christian. When you see the forces of darkness... Verse 9 is a really short verse. If you're looking for a quick one to memorize, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If you've got spiritual sense and discernment, listen. And then he says in our last verse from the passage, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. And then he says, here's our last phrase, don't miss it. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. John's message is the message of Jesus through this book. Persevere. Hang in there. Have faith because you're on the winning team. And all the evil that's out there, all the insanity and craziness that's out there, your God wins. Persevere. Have faith. That same John wrote two letters in that same time frame. Very quickly, he said in, in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. 
And his next letter, he said, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, maybe the greatest book in the Bible, one of them. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and heavenly places. The things that frustrate you, the things that uh, upset you, the things that make you uh, grieve or cry or be anxious for your children's children, all of that's under the greater umbrella, Paul says, and John says in the book of Revelation. It's all part of a bigger picture of evil and good clashing. The red dragon and the lamb who will prevail. And this great book, concluding the Bible, shows us victory belongs to the overcomers, John likes to call them. The overcomers who are in Christ, who are in the camp of the Lamb. We do win in the end. Uh, so rejoice when you go home and you turn on the news. Maybe you shouldn't go home and turn on the news today. But the next time you do and, and you're absolutely frustrated by these bizarre elections and the complete incapability of people to count votes. It's bizarre the time in which we live. Just understand that all that's just little stuff going on and a much bigger clash between good and evil. The sanctity of your life of issues and, and the sovereignty of God issues and, and God's worldview for us and his plan for our lives. It's all part of that timeless struggle. And Paul says... That's where the struggle is. It's, it's just like uh, that dividing up of the country of Brazil 500 years ago. Those missionaries had no idea what the Pope and the leaders of two countries had decided on the other side of the world. There are things that you and I will never be aware of, but what we need to know is the truth of what God's Word shares with us. Christ is risen. Christ is Lord. Christ is coming again. Christ will prevail. Trust in him with all your heart. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we're grateful uh, this morning for your sovereign rule over the affairs of the human race. We hear of wars in the past and we see wicked in our own generation and we're grieved by that and troubled by that and we ask lots of questions about it, but your word teaches us that you know it all and that you are in control of all things. You're an omnipotent God, omniscient God, and we trust you fully today. And we would pray for the United States of America and this time and this season that we might experience a great spiritual awakening. Uh, we don't need just a, a revival. We need a, a great awakening. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us uh, to open our hearts to the authority of your word the guidance of your spirit, that Jesus Christ might be honored and glorified in this land. But we trust as we march toward the end of time uh, that we will be able to trust fully the lordship of the Lamb, come what may. And that, as John said last week, we will not love our lives more than we love God. And we look to you in faith with thanksgiving and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.